All right, Remnant, how we doing? Excellent, excellent. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new to Remnant, we're glad you're here. Uh, if you're part of the Remnant family, we're glad you're here too. If you're watching us online, shout out to those folks. Uh, we're in this series um, that started, I don't know, a decade ago, um, where we began talking about end times and what we're seeing in the world and how it's pointing to what Jesus said would be the signs of the times. And so last week we opened up this book of Revelation. And we began actually reading the book of Revelation, which uh, took us a while to get to. But um, now that we're there, uh, we're going to savor every word of it because it's a very powerful book. We talked last week about how this is a book that it's a book of revelation, meaning that God wants to reveal things to us. So, so it's not a book meant to confuse you. It's not a book that's meant to be cryptic or to conceal things. It's a book that's supposed to open up things and make you see the truth and see what we want. And we talked last week about how this book is to unveil. It is a revelation, not revelations. There's only one revelation. And what this book reveals is Jesus Christ himself, the way he really is. And, and the, the things that are going to happen in the future. We learn that the first 65 books of the Bible lay the foundation for this book. Books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Genesis and Thessalonians and Matthew. There's not much in this book that at least hasn't been addressed at some level in the previous 65 books. But we talked about the idea of picking up a novel and reading the very last chapter. And somehow understanding the novel is just impossible. We learn that this book is straight from God through John and to us. The purpose of this book, Jesus said, was to tell us what was, what is, and what is to come. It's a self-proclaimed word of God. It's a book of prophecy. The book itself says these, these words come straight from God. And it's a book that foretells the future. It's prophecy. Last week, we covered what was. We saw Jesus as he really is. We saw Jesus tending to the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. And we learned that the angels or pastors of those churches are actually in his right hand. And we learned that even John, John the disciple, hit the deck and passed out when he saw glorified Jesus. For John... Those are the things that were. Things, we show you things that was. Now in chapter 2 and 3, we're going to look at the things that are. John is asked to write seven letters to seven churches. These letters are going to tell the pastors of those churches the true spiritual condition of those churches from the eyes and heart of Jesus himself. This isn't John's opinion. It's not John saying, hey, you need to improve this and you're good at this. This is Jesus himself to the pastor of the church saying, look, here's what I love about what you're doing. Here's what I don't love about what you're doing. And he writes to seven churches. And each of these letters give us the current condition of those seven churches from Jesus' perspective. So let's look again at those seven churches. These were all churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. 
They were likely church plants from the mothership, which was the church at Ephesus. Church at Ephesus was founded by Paul, and it's very likely since these churches are all very nearby and on the roads that lead out of Ephesus that they were founded by the pastors that were in Ephesus. It is very likely that all these churches were known to John because at the time this letter is written, which is about 95 AD, John was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So John is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. All these other churches are nearby. He likely has taught at them, preached them, and probably helped develop them. He likely has spiritual oversight of them. And he is the pastor of the one at Ephesus. These seven churches were on trade routes. The Roman roads left the seaport of Ephesus. Ephesus is a huge city that is on the seaport, and the Roman roads went out from that seaport to go to distant parts of Asia and Asia Minor. These were seven real churches in real places led by real pastors who had real congregations of real followers of Jesus Christ. These are not some theoretical, fictitious, ideological Statements. This is John being told by Jesus, I want you to write to these seven churches. And let me remind you that last week we talked about the importance of numbers in Revelation, that the number 3, 7, and 12 represent completion or fullness. And also remember that in the first century, from pretty much about A.D. 50 on, Christians were being persecuted. As soon as it became evident that the new Christian faith was not Judaism, and as soon as the Jewish people started recognizing that these people were following something different and we really don't want them in our synagogues, and as soon as the uh, leaders of the new Christian movement said that you don't have to do all the Jewish things to be a follower of Christ as a Gentile, all of a sudden that tension began to produce some persecution of Christians. There were two times, however, when Christians were under immense persecution, where it just got amped up to a high volume. The first time was under Nero in about 60 to 64 AD. Uh, he blamed the, the Christians for burning down Rome. They didn't do that, but he blamed them. And in response for that, he decided to light up the streets with Christians as he burned them. The next major persecution of Christians came during the time that John is dealing with this letter of Revelation, roughly 95 AD. It's under the Roman leader Domitian. So at the time that this letter is written, the church is under enormous persecution. Many of the people we see, are they know they're going to be martyrs. And so what happens is John, rather than being martyred, martyred we believe was just outcast to this island of Patmos, which is like Alcatraz. And from there, he got this revelation from Jesus about the things that were going to happen. And that's what this book is about. The first letter that Jesus says to write, he says, write to the church at Ephesus. Okay, that's the, that's the hub. That's John's church. We need to go back and remember Ephesus because it's going to be important to us when we get to the end of this sermon to reflect back on exactly where was this place and what happened there. It's on the coast. It's a huge seaport. 
At the time that Revelation was written, it likely had 300 to 325,000 residents, which made it about the size of Tampa. Okay? A little smaller than Tampa. It's a very wealthy city because all the trade came through their city. It's a very modern, very technical, very enlightened, if you want to call it. People from all over the world came through there with their new ideas and all these kind of things. In addition, it was the hub for the Roman road system. The Roman road system had 60,000 miles of roads. And Ephesus was the hub of that region. And the spokes go out from Ephesus, and we'll see that the churches, all seven of them, are on those spokes. In the time of Romans, it bore the title of the first and great metropolis of Asia. It was distinguished for the Temple of Diana. It was felt that the Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. The chief shrine had a theater, which is the largest in the world at that time, which would seat over 50,000 people. The Temple of Artemis, or Diana, according to a Roman name at Ephesus, is ranked as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. As the twin sister of Apollo and supposedly the daughter of Zeus, Artemis was known by various titles as the moon goddess, the goddess of hunting, the patronage of young girls. The temple at Ephesus housed an image of her that is reportedly came straight down from Zeus to be put into the temple. This is an important place for those who worshipped her. The great city was world famous as a religious, cultural, and economic center of the region. Ephesus had the Temple of Diana. She was considered to many by the mid to late first century as the fertility goddess and was worshipped with immoral sex. Tremendous Temple of Diana in Ephesus was regarded as, as this place where people could go and honor God by having these immoral sexual encounters with worshipers at the temple. It had 127 pillars, and each pillar was 60 feet tall. It was adorned with great sculptures. It was also a major treasury for that area, like a big bank. Merchants, kings, even cities made deposits at the temple, somehow thinking their money would be more safe under the protection of deity. Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. There are many, many things that happened there that were both superstitious and satanic. Books containing formulas for sorcery and other ungodly forbidden acts were plentiful everywhere in the city. The main thoroughfare, some 35 meters wide, ran from the theater to the harbor. And at the end, there were these impressive gates. And on each side, rows of columns and behind those columns were merchants and gymnasiums and impressive buildings. This is an important, big city. Now, let me remind you about the church at Ephesus. Okay? Paul founded this church during his missionary journey. If you remember, a man named Apollos was preaching in Ephesus when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, learned that he'd not been baptized in the Spirit 
but rather in John's baptism. Many Jews took up their residence in this city, and the seeds of the gospel were sown immediately after Pentecost. So soon after the Holy Spirit fell, many people traveling went to this city. At the close of his second missionary journey, about A.D. 51, when Paul was returning from Greece, he visited this city, but he only stayed there for a very short time. He needed to get back to the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, so he left Aquila and Priscilla behind to begin planting churches and to begin spreading the gospel. The history of Christianity at Ephesus began about A.D. 50 and was likely the result of these two faithful people, Priscilla and Aquila. Paul came to Ephesus about A.D. 52, started a ministry there that was for the better part of three years. And during the time that Paul was there, he wrote 1 Corinthians. So while Paul was at Ephesus, he was writing to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth for Paul was that a big problem. Let's just put it that way. It's a church gone wild. And Paul is like the bane of his existence. He always had to write to Corinth. He really struggled with his church. He described and discovered the same thing when he first came to Ephesus. Acts 8.10, when he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greeks. Notice the opposition to the gospel message. It came from within the church. People in the synagogues, after Paul would talk, would get up and they would basically say, you know, what he's saying is not true. So Paul took the believers and said, we're going somewhere else. For two and a half years, preached in the hall of Tyrannus. Now here's the other thing that's interesting. The Bible tells us that when Paul left Ephesus, every person in Asia had been exposed to the gospel of Christ. Think about that. That's an incredibly powerful statement. During his third missionary journey, he returns, was there for three years, says everybody there has been exposed to the gospel. And probably during that time is when these other seven churches were established either by uh, Paul as the leader of Ephesus establishing these other churches along the trade routes or people themselves like Priscilla and others leaving Ephesus to go establish plant churches as they went out. So these seven churches that are receiving letters likely have been churches for about 40 years by the time Revelation comes along. Now Ephesus was a place where people who were involved in magic and witchcraft and similar actions, they actually had a day where they burned all their books in public, the Bible says. All these people who'd previously been following sorcery and magic, one day they took all their books, all their manuals, all their instruction manuals, and they burned them because they were now followers of Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Acts 19 that those books were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And we're not talking about a few books. We're talking about a Texas-sized bonfire. 
Ephesus is also the city where there was a riot that happened, if you remember, because Paul put the silversmiths out of business. Because once everybody started understanding the gospel of Christ, they stopped buying little idols or big idols to put in their home. And it actually caused a riot in the streets because so many Christians now refused to bring idols in that the silversmiths were going broke. They eventually couldn't find Paul, so they dragged his companions out into the street while chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Acts 19.35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. What he's saying is, look, they're not talking about Diana. They haven't put her down at all. They're talking about this new God. And people aren't buying things anymore. You need to be careful how you proceed here. It was in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that he told them about the armor of God. Why did he tell them about the armor of God? Because they were going to need it. This is a church that was under enormous satanic attack, enormous persecution. If you remember towards the end of the book of Ephesians, he says, hey, you've got to put on the armor of God. You've got to have the shield of faith. You've got to have all these things because the attacks are coming. Then, as Paul is moving towards the end of his life and he's headed back to Jerusalem, he makes a stop near Ephesus. And he met with the elders at Ephesus. And for the whole time that Paul was there, he'd been protecting them from these false teachers that were coming in. He moved the church. He guarded them. He made sure that he reputed what they said. But in Acts 20... He gets the elders of this church together. Now, this is an important church, right? A big deal. He gets them together, and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, he didn't say that people are going to attack the church from the outside. What he said is people are going to walk in the church. They're going to look like believers. They're going to talk like believers, and they're going to attack like a wolf. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. So this church at Ephesus is a big deal. It's been a major player throughout all of the first century and Christian uh, uh, development. Paul left Timothy there. After he left, he sent Timothy, his protege. Where did he send him? He sent him to Ephesus. And right before Paul was imprisoned in Rome around 60 AD, he wrote this to 1 Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
Ephesus is a critical city. And it's critical to the spread of the gospel. And false teachers were a huge concern. Paul protected them from false teaching while he was there. He warned the elders. He sent Timothy. He knew. He knew that this church was going to be attacked by false teachers. Eventually, John goes to Ephesus to be their pastor. Think about this church. I mean, we're going to talk about it quite a bit, but this church, I mean, they had Paul. And then when Paul wasn't around anymore, here comes John. I mean, he's like one of the big 12. He knows Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He knows everything. John is their pastor. I wish John was your pastor. I can't imagine what John was able to do with the people that were in that church. In the 6th century, the Roman emperor Justinian raised a magnificent church in this city to John's honor. Ephesus continued to play an important role in the church. In A.D. 431, the Council of Ephesus officially condemned the Nestorian heresy, which we'll talk about. One of the things they taught were that there are two separate persons, one human and one God in Jesus. That Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man at the same time. They were two separate things. This church was critical in shutting that down, the false teaching, part of what John worried them or was worried about. So in Revelation 2.1, Jesus says this. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Okay, we spoke last week about how it would be so cool if every church had their own angel. Maybe we do. Maybe there's an angel looking over remnant. I hope so. But it's unlikely that God wanted to communicate to an angel about the condition of the church because the angel would already know, particularly the spiritual condition. It's also unlikely that if you're going to speak to an angel, you'd write a letter. Letters, angels typically don't have mailboxes. God just speaks to them. But here we're writing a letter. And we talked last week about how the word uh, in uh, Hebrew, the word for angel means messenger. And that it's far more likely that Jesus is telling John to write to the pastors of these churches so that they can understand the true spiritual condition. Pastor being the one who's responsible for delivering the message of God that's been given to him to that congregation and that flock. It's incredible to me. These churches have real issues, all seven of them. We're going to look at them. But their pastor is still in the right hand of God. Even when he's telling them, you're not doing it right. Even when he's condemning them for what they're doing wrong, they're still securely in the right hand of Jesus. He holds the churches. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not come against it. And Jesus, while holding the pastors in his right hand, is walking among the seven lampstands, tending to the lights of the church. I would much rather know that I'm in the right hand of Jesus than to know there's an angel assigned to our church. But I prefer both. Now think about this. John is told to write a letter to the messenger, the pastor at Ephesus. Begins writing. Then he starts thinking about it. Wait, this is to me. He's asking me to write a letter to me. 
I can't imagine what it would be like as a pastor to sit down with Jesus and have him start looking at your church through his eyes. So here's John about to write a letter. This letter follows the same pattern of the next six letters that follow it. There's an introduction from Jesus identifying who he is. Then there's a commendation. Here's what you're doing well. Then there's a condemnation. Here's what you're not doing well. And then it's followed by a call to action. Here's what you need to do and the blessing you will receive if you do it. All seven letters follow the same pattern for the most part. Two exceptions. First, the church at Smyrna, which we'll look at next week, there are no words of condemnation. And for the church at Laodicea, there are no words of commendation. Ouch. We'll look at that when we get to it. We'll find out why when we get to each of these churches. Revelations 2.1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus identifies him to this church by describing the vision that John has just seen. To emphasize the authority of Jesus in the church, he holds the seven stars. To emphasize his presence in and over the church, he walks in the midst of the lampstands. This introduction stresses that it is Jesus who is central to the church. He holds. The ancient word in Greek is emphatic, and it really means he holds them securely. The churches belong to Jesus, not to the leaders of the church or to the people of the church. He holds them. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how hard you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Wow. John's got to be lit up. Jesus describes the way things are at the church of Ephesus. He says, look, I know. I'm the only one who really knows the spiritual condition of your church, and I know. Remember that in the chapter before, we saw his eyes as penetrating like fire seeking truth. He knows. He sees everything. He sees the heart behind every action. He can look through the pretense of churches that are fake or going through motions. He sees with searing penetration the truth. And his opinion about each of these churches is the only opinion that matters. It's no mystery to him. If there's corruption hidden in the congregation, it's not hidden to Jesus. He would say the same thing to us today, both as individuals as as a congregation. I know your works. I know. So what's the spiritual condition of the church at Ephesus? Well, Jesus begins his commendation. He lists seven of them. I know your works. I've been watching. I know that you've been doing for the gospel. I know your works. I know your toil. I know that this work has not been easy. You've had to struggle, and it's been very hard work. I see that. I know how hard you've been striving. 
I know your patient endurance. I know there's been times when you wanted to quit, when it seemed too hard, when you wanted to give up, yet you waited and you kept striving and you have endured. I know you can't tolerate those that are evil. You have a very clear sense of right and wrong. You have a strong moral code and you enforce it and you follow it as a church. You hold strong to your ethics and you won't put up with people who don't strive to meet those standards. I know that you've tested those who call themselves apostles but are not and found them to be false. You remember what Paul told the church at Ephesus? People are going to come. They're going to try to deceive. They're going to not tell the truth. They're going to lie about who they are. They're going to come from within the church. Be ready and watch out. After my departure, these fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, you've got to understand that the growing church in the first century was a pretty profitable movement. The first day at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, three to 5,000 people suddenly were believers. They had to have a place to meet. It became very profitable. In fact, the Bible tells us that there were people going around trying to make money off this deal. And they would go from church to church and they'd say, I I was with Jesus. Let me tell you what he's like. Let me tell you what he looks like. Let me tell you what he told me. You see, I was with Jesus. And they would go from church to church with their fanciful stories, many of which ended up in apocryphal literature, which we'll get to someday. But they made up stories about Jesus. They made up their relationship with Jesus, but they traveled from church to church. And after they told this incredible story of how much they had learned from Jesus, the church would take up a collection and send them on their way to go tell some other church these lies. So imagine that you're one of those guys and you stumble into the church at Ephesus and you tell the story. I was with Jesus. I was there. You should have seen it. We did this and this and this. And let me tell you, his laugh was like this and his eyes were incredible. I was with Jesus. And just when he finishes, this old man on the front row stands up. You're with Jesus, really? I'm John, and I don't remember seeing you anywhere. Busted. That's what the Bible says happened. You you found people who were false teachers, who were promoting to be evangelists, and you called them out on it, and you watched for them, and you protected the church, and Jesus gives them a a commendation for being careful with people who claim to be apostles, but the Bible says they weren't. And then he says, I know that you endure patiently and bearing up for my sake. I know that you're bearing up. I know you're facing hardships, trials, tough times. I want you to know that I see these things. I know how hard it's been for you. And then he says, and I know you've not grown weary. It would have been so easy to give up. It would have been so easy to be worn down over time. But you haven't done that, Jesus says. You've not grown weary of doing the right thing. No matter how hard things have become, you're still doing your best and you're still standing strong. No matter what happened, you would not quit. Wow, what a report. Seven commendations that John is really excited about. And I'm sure when these seven were over, he said, okay, I'll get that right out to the church. 
And Jesus said, not so fast. There are some other things we need to talk about. You see, because even though you've done all those incredible things, there's something you're doing that doesn't please me. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Wow. This is the church at Ephesus. This is the big hub church. They're doing all these things right. But Jesus, who looks at the heart, says, you've abandoned me. You're going through the motions. You're going through the activities. You look good on the outside, but I'm watching your heart. You left me long ago. And you don't even know it. It's a sobering word. Nevertheless. It means despite all that. Despite of all the good you're doing at Ephesus, despite all that, I have something against you. You have abandoned or left the love that you had for me at first. Now, many have misquoted this verse. So I want to make sure we get it right. He does not say you have lost your first love. That would be much better. He says you have abandoned it. You have left it. It's not that you don't know where it is and you don't know how to find it. You know exactly what it is and you've chosen to leave it behind. You're not walking around trying to figure out how to connect with God. You've just chosen not to. The distinction between leaving and losing is important. Sometimes you can lose something by accident, can't you? It just happened. You don't know where it went. You don't know where to find it. But leaving, that's a deliberate act. May not happen suddenly, but over time, just went a little further away. We know where God wants us to be. We're just going further away. We look good on the outside. We're doing all the things we're supposed to do. We're caring about people. We're, we're putting in doctrine. We're morally good, but we just keep stepping farther away from Jesus. Not because we don't know where he is or what he wants us to do. We have abandoned him. Wow. And even though this incredible church had lost their first love, everything looked good on the outside. If you would have attended a service at Ephesus, you might have thought, wow, this is a happening church. They're doing so much, they really guard the truth. And at the same time, you might have this vague internal feeling that something's just not right. It wasn't hard for Jesus to see the problem even though everybody probably looked pretty good on the outside. What love did they lead? What love did they walk away from? Well, the Bible tells us that we're to love God and to love one another. Did they leave their love for God? Did they leave their love for one another? Probably both. Because the two go together. You can't say you love God and then not love his family. can't really love his family without loving him first. The Ephesus church was doctrinally pure. They knew the truth. They enforced the truth. They taught the truth. Sometimes a church can focus so much on doctrinal purity, being right and wrong, that they become suspicious of anybody else. They begin to become frozen chosen with stained glass. They don't reach out to people anymore. They just make sure they know the truth and that they know they're standing on the right side of it. And in the process, they leave Jesus behind. 
Remember that by the time John is writing this, he's an old man, probably 90. He's been in ministry for about 60 years. He always referred to himself as the one Jesus loved. It wasn't a cocky thing. It was just, of all the things important in his life, the most important title for him was that for some reason, Jesus loved him. He was known as the loving disciple. He had a wonderful way with words. We spoke last week how he was kind of the little brother of the group. Had a funny and engaging relationship with Jesus. He asked asked his mother to approach Jesus to ask a question for him because he couldn't ask it himself. And Jesus responds with kind of a funny answer. Oh, yeah, son of thunder. Got your mom coming. Uh Uh-huh. Jesus had an interesting relationship with John. John was not brash and bold. He was not a son of thunder in any term at any point in his life. He was thinking, introspective poet of the group. Peter might have been a son of thunder. John, no. And Jesus is kind of playing with him. Yeah, son of thunder, send your mom again. Jesus is calling him back to those moments. Remember how far you've fallen. Remember how you felt when we first started? Remember how you were on fire with love for me? John described those feelings in one of his letters, 1 John, chapter 1, describing Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Look at how carefully John places every word. That which we have heard. John traveled with Jesus for three years. He heard every sermon, every discussion, everything Jesus had to say to them. He heard him during those late night discussions when they're all just sitting around. He heard him love those who seemed unlovable. He heard him rebuke those who seemed to have power. He knew the sound. He knew the inflection and the subtleties of Jesus' voice. And he says, that which we've heard. Then he says, that which we've seen with our eyes. John knows what Jesus looked like. He knew what his eyes were like. He knew his body habitus. He knew how Jesus walked. He knew the expression when he laughed. He knew the hand gestures Jesus would use. And he's seen it all. And he says, that which we have seen. Then he moved on. He says, that which we've looked upon. The better translation there is that which we've gazed upon. John didn't just see Jesus. He gazed upon him with wonder. There were times in Jesus' life when all the disciples, it had to have happened, were sitting around and they're looking going, who is this man? And they're not just looking, they're gazing. And at different times they realize they're gazing at God. Gazed with wonder upon Christ. Then he says, that which we've touched with our hands. How many times do you think Jesus touched John? How many times do you think he put his arm around him or slapped him on the back or prayed over him by laying on his hands? Gave him a hand to help him up on a climb maybe or just 
gave him a gentle touch of reassurance. John, likewise, reaching out to touch Jesus. In the same manner, he says, that which we've touched with our own hands. The one we proclaim is the word of life. John had an intimate relationship with Jesus. And now in Revelation, Jesus is turning to him to write a letter to his church. And he's saying, you have abandoned that first love. How does the last remaining apostle, the leader of the church at Ephesus, the writer of five different books of the Bible lead a church that loses his first love. How could that possibly happen? This is John, the apostle. I totally get it. John's been in ministry for 60 years. I've known shared experience with a lot of pastors. I've been in ministry about 16 years. We all started out in our early days responding to God's call for one simple reason. We fell in love with Christ. And we just wanted to serve him and give our life to him. He's our first love. That's why every pastor is a pastor. They fall in love with Jesus and he calls them into ministry. Same way when you fall in love with anyone. Early on, everything's exciting and new. You're driven by this incredible love that you feel. Every thought, your life revolves around that person. But after some time, ministry begins to change. You're now the pastor of a church. You have a staff. You have a budget. You have a building to maintain. You have expectations to meet, a board of elders to respond to, an offering to maintain, attendance to keep up. You're running a business. You have sermons to write, programs to launch, people to counsel, weddings to officiate, funerals to help people walk through. You're almost always on call and almost somebody's almost always unhappy about something. Yet it's the greatest honor and the greatest job in the entire world. Get to see lives changed. You get to teach people and see their eyes just light up when they get it. You get invited into the most intimate of moments during people's lives. You get enormous support from those that are in the church. But sometimes in the quietness of your soul, when you're all alone, you ask yourself, how did I get here? Because it's so easy in ministry to get so involved in the church that you set Jesus aside. It happens to so many pastors that they are leaving the ministry in droves. They're unable to reconnect with their first love because their ministry actually prevents it. It's not just true of ministry. It happens to all of us. We can, over time, abandon or leave our first love. We haven't lost it, just ignored it. It can happen in any loving relationships. Great marriages learn how to constantly reconnect with first love. There's a definite, sure difference in in our relationship with Jesus. Things aren't as they used to be. It's not that we expect that we should have that excitement that we had when everything was brand new. But newness should transition into a depth 
a new kind of relationship that makes first love even stronger. That's how it is in the church. Most of us, if we were really honest, realize that this condemnation is not just for the church at Ephesus. It's a good analogy because the church is the bride of Christ. And our relationship with Christ is like a marriage. The walk of any Christian and any marriage is like any other love relationship. There are mountaintop moments, there's valleys that seem dark, and there's a lot of flat land that just happens in between. And in every relationship, you learn how to reconnect your first love, and you realize that your love for that person is now deeper, more solid, and built on a lifetime of experiences and memories. Your spiritual journey with Jesus is to be the same way. You can't be on a spiritual mountaintop all the time. It's impossible. There's going to be dark times. There's going to be flat times when it seems like nothing happens. There's going to be a lot of time in between. Look at King David. His life is on mountaintops. It goes in valleys. If you read the Psalms, he pours out. During those times, he complains to God. He cries out to God. He praises God. And sometimes he just seems really flat. That's how it is in the church. Jesus is not just talking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to all churches of all times, including us. And our personal relationship with God. He says, look, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent. Do the works you used to do at first. The first step in restoring the Ephesian church is to get them to remember where they used to be. Look from where you have fallen. Remember your love for me. And now let's get honest about where you are now. Then he says, repent. He doesn't say feel sorry or feel bad about it. He says, change your direction. Turn back to me. You know where I'm at. You know the things you need to do. Do them. It's an instant appeal for an urgent change to do the things you did when you went, first fell in love with Jesus. The Lord is saying to John and the church at Ephesus and to all of us, I want you to go back there. I want you to remember your first love. Remember, therefore, from how far you have fallen. And then Jesus warns them, repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you continue to do things for me without doing things because you love me, your church will be taken away. Plain and simple. Jesus didn't develop churches so that we could accomplish things. He developed churches so that we would grow in our relationship with him. If we've left him behind, we're not a church, we're a social club. And Jesus knows it. He says he'll remove the church, he'll take it away. Now, when Paul left this church 40 years before, every person in Asia Minor had heard the gospel of Jesus. In the early church, the church at Ephesus and Asia Minor was the engine that drove all the other churches that went north. Some 40 years later, Jesus is warning John, if you don't repent and go back to your first love, I'm going to remove your lampstand. How did that turn out? If you go to Turkey today, it's 98% Muslim. In the huge city of Istanbul, there are only three churches and they are poorly attended. 
Our church has friends in Turkey. Did Jesus remove their lampstand? I think so. Imagine how crushed John is at this moment. He knows it's true. He knows that if Jesus says it, it's true. The person who loved Jesus as much, if not more, than any person on the planet has now, Jesus has chastised him for not losing but abandoning him. At one point a while ago, I was called by God to tell a church that they too had lost their first love, that they had abandoned the Word of God, that they had stopped praying. And that God was calling us back to be a church that holds on to his word and prays. So I sort of know what John feels like. But I love that Jesus didn't leave him there. Look at what he says next. Yet this you have. I hate the work of the Nicolaitans. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans. These were people who took the approach that the church should accommodate itself to the dominant culture that it's in. The Nicolaitans were a strong movement in the early church. Ephesus was a very enlightened city and considered to have incredible culture. Their theater sat 30,000 people. It was the home of the Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had one of the three great libraries of all time. It was a sophisticated city, and the church was right in the middle of it. Irenaeus, writing in the late 2nd century, described the Nicolaitans. They're the followers of Nicholas, who was one of the first seven to be ordained deacons by the apostles. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is clearly pointed out in the Apocalypse of John. They practice adultery. They eat things sacrificed to idols. They are immoral. The Nicolaitans, like all deceivers that come from the body of Christ, claim this. We're not destroying Christianity. We're making it more relevant. We're presenting an improved, modernized version of the gospel message that people will accept because they're rejecting your message. So there were people who said, look, the church should accommodate to the wishes and desires of the people in that culture. The church needs to compromise and get along. Bring in what's good from society and enhance the church with it. There are plenty of Nicolaitans in our city today, too. But let me say this as clearly as I know how to say. That's not what the church is about. Do you know where we get the word church in Greek? It comes from the word ecclesia or ecclesia. It means literally those called out of. The church of Jesus Christ are those who have been called out of the world and its culture and into the family of God. We aren't supposed to look like the culture. How are we to look to the world? Here's what I want you to remember. The world is the Titanic. You see the ship, you see all the partying, you see all the fun, you see everybody having a great time. It looks incredible. 
But you know the destination of the Titanic. You know where it's going to end up, and you know what's going to happen to those people. That's the church. That's the world. Those are people that are in the world. They're on the dance floor of the Titanic. And our job is not to become dancers on the Titanic. Our job is to get them in the lifeboat, to rescue them from things that are about to happen. It's our job. The church was never, never to accommodate the culture around it to make it more relevant. Jesus has been relevant longer than we've ever been alive. The church is revolutionary and confrontational to the culture in which God has placed it. It's been that way from the beginning. The Nicolaitans were just saying, let's all get along and the church will make some compromises to make people feel more comfortable. Please don't miss Jesus' words. I hate that. Those are powerful words come from a Savior who is so rich in love. Whoever the Nicolaitans were and whatever exactly they did and taught, we learn something from Jesus' opinion about them. We learn that the God of love hates sin. And he wants his people to also hate sin. Then Jesus closes this letter with a call to action. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, it seems that at first, the church at Ephesus seemed to heed this warning. In the early second century, Ignatius praised the love and the doctrinal purity of the Ephesians. He says, you, who are the most holy church of the Ephesians, which is so famous and celebrated throughout the world, you, being full of the Holy Spirit, do nothing according to the flesh, but all things according to the Spirit. You are complete in Jesus Christ. That's what Ignatius writes about this church in the second century. It seems from his writings that this church returned to their first love without compromising doctrinal purity. That's not an easy balance, by the way. But they kept it at least for a time. And the promise that God gave them is if you do that, you will be able one day to have a restoration of the relationship with God and we will share in the fruit of the tree of life just like it was supposed to be in Eden before the fall. Okay, that's an interesting story about an Ephesian church. What about us? Jesus said, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each one of these seven letters applies to all churches. We must hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just this one church. We're going to look as we go through every one of these letters, and we're just going to go, ouch. Wow. He says, he who has an ear to hear, better point to this one, do what the Spirit says. Do you remember last week when we looked at the first chapter? Jesus told John to reveal what was, what is, and what is to come. And in chapter 2 and 3, the letters of the seven churches are revealing what is. What was in their current time and is what currents in our time. So this is a letter of warning to you and to me right now in this exact moment. It's so easy to abandon your first love. 
and still think everything's okay. You're going about doing what good Christians do, attending church, maybe volunteering in a ministry, maybe never missing small group. You talk about Jesus at work. You listen to the radio station when you're driving. Try to live a moral life that honors God. Try to be a good parent, a good friend. Everything looks really good on the outside. On the outside, everybody may look at your life and the life of this church and think everything's okay. But think about John. He did those things. He did everything. Think about this incredible church at Ephesus. They were founded by Paul, led by John. They did incredible things. They looked incredible on the outside. And Jesus told them that they'd lost their first love. Pretty sobering. So how do you know if Jesus is front and center in your life? How do you know if you're just going through the motions? How do you know if you've abandoned your first love? I think there are four key parameters that you can look at and examine your own life for that in my mind have always measured someone's personal devotion and their relationship with Christ. Because serving and attending don't measure it. Anybody can serve and attend. You can do all kinds of things at church. You can look really good. But you want to know where you really are with your first love? Look at four areas of your life. The first, your personal time alone with God in his word. Second, your personal time in prayer with God. Third, your commitment to the tithe. Fourth, your connection in worship. Those four things. They're all on you. Nobody else can do them for you. You can't go through the motions. You can try. It doesn't work. When you're in love with someone, think about this. When you're in love with someone, you can't wait to learn as much about them as you can. You sit down with them. If they wrote a diary and you, have, you read it, you, you talk about life. You talk about where they've been. You talk about their experiences. When you're in love with somebody, you can't get enough of their story. If you're really in love with Jesus, you can't get enough of his book. And you want to read it. And you know that when you don't read it, you start doing this. It's still over there. You know where you're supposed to be. But you just, things are busy now. Oh, I'm doing things at church. Everything's good. The Bible's over there collecting dust. Got to spend time in his word. When you're in love with someone can't wait to talk to them. Can't wait to share your day with them. You can't wait to get their opinion. You can't wait to hear their voice. That's what prayer is. If you're not praying, you're not in love. If you say you're going to pray for somebody and you don't do it, you've taken some steps this direction. When you go back to your first love, you can't wait to get on your knees and pray and talk to God and get his advice and spend time with him, even if he's silent, because you just want to be in his presence. Same thing in a relationship that we have. We're in love with somebody. Being with them is enough. Third thing, when you're in love with someone, 
You want to give them gifts. You want to make sacrifices for them. You want to help them. You want to help what's important to them. Jesus says to us, where your heart is, there your treasure will follow. If you're struggling with the tithe, if you're struggling with giving God at least a tenth of what you're receiving, you've moved this direction. And I can say that with complete and total abandon because I'm a volunteer. So when you give money to this church, none of it comes to me. But I've found over years that your grip on dollars establishes how tightly you're holding on to Jesus or holding on to yourself. So one of the measures of your own life is I need to look at where I am when it comes to investing in the things that are important to God. Because that's what we do in any love relationship. We invest in the things that are important to the people that we love. We give gifts to those we love. We make sure their agenda is supported. The last thing, when you're in love with somebody, you have a favorite love song. Comes on the radio, takes you back to a moment, takes you back to a memory. It reminds you of your first love. It reminds you of that feeling that you had when you were first going through the, the relationship and developing that relationship. What do you think a worship song is? A worship song is you remembering Jesus and your first love. If you stand up in this church during worship and you're just mouthing some words and looking around, you need to establish where your heart really is. Because when you return to your first love, being in the word becomes easy. Praying becomes easy. Tithing becomes easier. And worshiping becomes natural. If you're not... Please pay attention to this letter. Jesus sent it as a warning to the way things are. What did Jesus tell us to do? Well, if you've lost your first love, think about how far you've fallen. Then repent. Get back to it. Get busy doing the things you did at first. Nobody can do these for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have given us this word, this letter. It's hard to hear. It stirs up in us those feelings of failing. But God, these aren't just actions that we do. These are all actions that come out of love for you. So God, I pray that you would help each of us remember to go back with you in the spirit and remember our first love. To remember what motivated us. To remember how excited we were to be in that relationship. And God, I'm not asking that you take us into those emotions. I'm asking that you move us to a deeper relationship that's like a steady river that runs through your life. So God, for our church, would you pull us back to your word? Would you pull us back to prayer? Would you pull us back into supporting what you said is important? And God, would you allow us from the depths of our heart to worship you as no other? So God, forgive us if we've pulled away from you. Haven't lost you. We just walked away. And help us, God, through the power of your spirit to take us back and to bring us back so that we too can eat from the fruit of life and from the tree of life with you.
And we ask it in Jesus.